Hello and welcome to Mental Health TV. This is our second episode. Uh, my name is Nikki Lambert. I'd like you to introduce you to my other colleagues here. So, Vanessa. Hi, I'm Vanessa Garrity. I'm um, presenting tonight with Nikki. Um, I'm also going to be looking at the social media comments when they come in. So if you'd like to join us, you can either join in on Twitter, um, hashtag MHTV, or you can join us via the Facebook live feed. And we'd love it if you could send in some questions for Rebecca this evening. Thank you. It's fantastic. We've got Dave lurking in the background, but can we also bring in our fantastic guest, Rebecca? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, uh, yes, I'm Rebecca. I'm, uh, Rebecca Thomas. I'm the HSJ's senior correspondent for mental health, learning disabilities, and autism services. Uh, what to tell? What to tell you about myself? Uh, <laughs> I'm interested in all of the above. Uh, I think I'm particularly interested in issues of patient safety within mental health, LD and autism services, and more recently, health inequalities. Yes, thank you ever so much for taking time to be with us. Thank it's you. really much appreciated. Um, and I'm sure loads of people have questions for you, but we have some questions for you as well. And the way we'll do it obviously is we'll ask you some questions and then we'll go out to people who are listening and see if they want to join in too. So the thing I think that we were first thinking about was, um, this is the year of the nurse and the midwife. Um, and it's absolutely not what we planned. So we were, <laughs> or anybody planned. So globally speaking, there were all these activities we were going to be doing to bring nursing um, particularly into the forefront. Um, and for whatever reasons, and there were many, many, not least of which being COVID and coronavirus, um, none of those plans have, have really taken place. So what would the story have been this year, do you think? The big stories in mental health have been if we hadn't been talking about coronavirus. We hadn't been talking about coronavirus. Well, uh, how to recruit more nurses, how to retain more nurses. And, and I think, to be honest, I think that's still going to be the uh, the issue we need to talk about um, during coronavirus. But I think uh, this is going to be the first year of the long term plan. And so recruiting now so to make the service changes later was going to be the biggest thing to talk about. So staffing, staffing, staffing. Staffing and staffing. <laughs> mm, yeah, I could, I could see that. What impact do you think coronavirus is going to have on staffing? Um, oh, it's so I, there's been a lot of um, debate about it. So whether this further down the line we'll see um, staff suffering a lot of PTSD, whether what, what do they need now, whether it's um, um, the usual day-to-day -day stuff like a normal rotor, more pastoral support. So I think maybe we'll start to see employers and the public finally think of, thinking about the well-being of um, NHS staff and in terms of what they're, what they're going to need because uh, they are what has kept uh, things running during coronavirus. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, Vanessa, did you want to come at all on staffing or um, impacts of coronavirus on that? Yeah, no, I'm just interested um, just in terms of all the things that have been put in place to um, to bring nurses back, nurses who've retired or left the profession. Um, it'd be just interesting to know whether any of the, those nurses or how many of those nurses will continue now the back mm. in nursing. How many were we successful in bringing back and what's been their experiences? And that'd be quite interesting because we've been talking for a long time haven't we about how do we recruit people how do we bring people back and um, but it took a crisis for us to suddenly think well we can be flexible about an MC we can be flexible um about kind of return to nursing training we've somehow managed to 
to get a workforce together who's been able to get people through return to nursing and back out there quite quickly. And we couldn't do that pre-COVID. So I think there's a lot of learning from that, but also be quite an interesting thing to focus on um, after the pandemic. So I've been looking. Do you think the do you think the profession will have become more attractive after this? I don't know. I mean, it's difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, people are putting their lives on the line, aren't they, at the moment? And I think, um, I think, I was reading a comment that said um, a nurse who said, you know, they'll always remember this. If anyone says, "What were you doing during the pandemic?" They'll be proud to remember that they were a nurse during the pandemic. And I can totally see that, but I can also see. Um, how much trauma um, nurses have been through, how many families have been separated during the pandemic, um, mothers who are nurses who have been separated from the children for weeks because they don't want to put them at risk, um, other colleagues I know who've, who've lost people during the pandemic. So I think it'll be really mixed, really, in terms of the impact. I think it's raised the profile, hasn't it, quite rightly away from talking about bankers um, actually talking about um you know people who are making a difference to other people's lives and maybe will value um nurses and healthcare staff differently in the future i'd like to think so but we'll see i mean what's your thoughts rebecca do you have any thoughts on that oh, well i'm not a nurse so it's difficult to say, <laughs> say but um i think it's definitely raised the profile in terms of you've got the whole public clapping uh, for those yeah. who work in the NHS every week but then I think also at the same time there's that unhelpful and we were discussing this earlier that unhelpful mantra about um, being on the front line mm -hmm. as if it was signing up to join the army uh, which I don't know personally I think is an unhelpful probably an unhelpful comparison. We've always had a history of it haven't we um, with people talking about you know cancer survivors people talking about battle and war metaphors when it comes to illness um, and now it's sort of spread into um, staffing. What I particularly have a problem with about it is um, that it suggests that um, becoming a nurse should mean that as a matter of course your life is put at risk um, and this I think Vanessa as well was talking about kind of a hero narrative mm -hmm. where if somebody is a hero um, they're doing it because it's the it's it's expected and Things like safety, um, security, respect, those things are bound up together when actually it's, you can respect someone, you can clap them and you can pay them and you can protect them. They're not either or. They're all, all different aspects of the same um, working environment, I would say. Was anything coming through on Twitter? Yeah, um, just an interesting question from JJ Slater, who says, I'm interested in what Rebecca thinks with regard to the current inclusion of learning disability, autism, deaths in the COVID numbers and why the inclusion took so long. We were going to add anyway. Um, Rebecca, any thoughts now? Yeah, so uh, it was really important that that data was published and uh, it should never have had to have been dragged out of the government and NHS England. Um, uh, and the reason why it was important because it it can flag up issues early so they can be dealt with now instead of next year and next year's leader report. But there are a lot of problems with the data um, in terms of the way they're recording it and there probably are thousands of people that aren't actually being captured by it. Um, so, for example, the mental health one is our, <clears throat> the category is uh, people who have been treated by mental health services at any point in their lives. 
uh, that's very um, that's very nondescript. But yeah, it was really important, um, and we need that, that that kind of data to um, <clears throat> to even get a hint at uh, whether things like the what happened with the DNRs at the beginning of this have had an impact. Yeah. So what, what um, Rebecca's referring to there with DNRs, do not resuscitate. Um, and at the start of the COVID pandemic, people with learning disability and people with autism were, there was concerns they would be denied intensive care treatment if they became ill from COVID um, because they were being wrongly categorised alongside um, elderly or frail patients. And now I have a problem with all of that. So, you know, people who are elderly and fail being given automatic DNRs anyway, I think is extremely, yeah. should we politely say extremely problematic, but this idea about lumping in um, completely different types of client. Um, type, but, uh, and also when you say types of client, you're kind of missing the point that they're people, types yeah. of people. Not service um, users, they are people. Yeah, people are people, <laughs> yeah. And um, this idea that you would have an automatic um, expectation on how they would be treated in an emergency I found quite frightening and quite concerning and rightly there was an outcry over it. So the current situation as far as I'm aware is that people are saying that um, there isn't um, any unusual activity in the numbers around a learning disability, but it's not counting private homes, am I right? It's not counting a lot of yeah. places where we know this population live. So CQC are going to analyse the data, but we will, we will yet to see there was quite a significant um, number in leaders. Uh, so Le the leader published their data after, or NHS England published leaders data after much pushing. Um, and it shows you, so non-COVID deaths. And there was, there has been quite a significant increase in mm. deaths of people with learning disabilities and autism, not from COVID. And that, de as with the excess care home deaths, that definitely needs to be looked at. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because, I mean, this is... Um, a problem without a solution at the moment, isn't it? So we don't know how many waves of this we're going to get. We don't know if this is the first of other other very similar experiences that we're going to have. So the sooner we get um, on board with recording deaths in a way that helps us to understand what's actually happening, what the picture is, um, the, the safer people will be overall. But it is it shows up the fault lines in society, doesn't it, around power so clearly. As I understand it, um, there all, there is a big problem with just general the recording of people who have autism. And those, as I understand it, there is a big black hole in terms of that. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit why you think that is? Um, it's difficult. Uh, I'm not sure. Perhaps not Not a priority, doesn't fit into a certain slot, um, mm. not conditioned to be treated. Or, I don't know. Mm. One to watch, I think, though. <laughs> so in terms of... Um, Kind of the experience that people have had. We also mentioned like last week we talked about this idea that you know it's the same storm but different boats, but different people are having very different experiences. So can you talk, tell us a little bit more about kind of the inequalities that we're seeing, um, anything around sort of data and missing things that we need to look at more closely as professionals? So uh, and and I'm not sure of the data this is that this is based on. I think it's mainly based on um, surveys by um, charities such as Mind and Rethink, but PHE. Um, in a presentation last week uh, to people in the service. Um, um, so that basically they highlighted that people with serious mental health conditions were recording much lower levels of well-being compared to uh, the general population. 
Mm. Um, and I guess if you think about it, that that needs to be a group of people we really need, we really should be having a focused eye on because of all the health comorbidities that come with um, that population and the fact that there are these huge health inequalities and um, off the top of my head, I don't know what the rate is, but it's much lower life expectancy, for example. Yeah. Absolutely. Vanessa? Um, I was just going to say, I know that Rethink have been doing a survey as well, looking at, um, um, you know, surveying people who've got sort of serious mental illness and the impact on COVID. So it'd be quite interesting, mm. that, I think, in a future episode. Perhaps because certainly talking to my colleagues who are working with that group, it's very, very difficult. And presentations of people are different, mm -hmm. and quality and people being isolated, and and people with serious mental illness might not necessarily have the the um, devices or digital literacy, um, but are not seeing mental health professionals regularly currently. Um, or a lot of their experiences of psychosis are uh, kind of um, becoming linked into um, coronavirus. And I guess being a nurse and not being able to have that connection with mm. people is quite difficult because that's kind of what we do as mental health nurses, isn't it? Yeah, I do, I do have some data on that. So I had, um, again, PHE, so Public Health England. So one in four adults have not received the mental health care they need during the pandemic. Um, people with serious illnesses are reporting much lower levels of well-being compared to others. So we can see really clearly that this is changing how yeah. we how people are being able to access care. Mm. And, it, and it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because on one hand, as soon as we all went online, I think some people thought that that would bring an equality in itself. Like everybody used to have a phone. Everybody has a mobile, pretty much. Everybody pretty much has access. And now we're seeing actually that's not true. So there has been some real inequalities on that. Yeah, I think it's something that really should be watched because um, I don't know, I don't know what you what, what do you call it, internet inequality. Mm. Um, people able to access people being um, um, digitally literate, literate um, uh, and it, whether that might cause uh, additional inequalities. Because as we know, most mental health services have continued to provide services throughout COVID nineteen, but largely digitally. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. It's been interesting as well, hasn't it? Because a lot of the kind of um, story has been around how um, how adult nursing is stepping up and adult nursing has done a fantastic job. But I think it's really overlooked the fact that mental health services have carried on going. You know, people have reorganised trusts, people have worked across boundaries, borders, they've, you know, they've come in from home, they've stayed isolated from families, they've um, moved client groups around to keep people safe you know so much work has gone on across the whole of the NHS and other sort of social care facilities I think a lot of that has been unseen um, but what has been interesting as well is this now we've had this digital disruption we've had this big break I mean from an education point of view you know people were talking about doing stuff um, over the course of two or three years and actually it happened over the course of pretty much a long weekend so <laughs> it didn't happen smoothly but we did sort of lump our way into online learning very quickly and I think one of the things that's interesting is how um, service users are being able to access sort of GP appointments now. Um, I've had um, yeah. colleagues who've had sore throats and have been putting like their mobile phones in their mouth so their doctors can have a look <laughs> down the back of their throat. So we are seeing really new ways of working. But again, we have this big, big issue with internet access is not a given for a lot of people. Privacy, and so if someone's in an overcrowded or shared accommodation, you know, they don't necessarily have anywhere private to have a conversation. You know, and it's great, isn't it, to be able to access um, 
therapy or an intervention in your car, you know, just be able to have a quiet time. But at the same time, it is leaving people very open and exposed in other ways. Mm. Vanessa, did you want to come on that? Yeah, I think really and do have access to the devices if you're pressed or you're hearing voices um, mm. you might not necessarily want to have a conversation I mean I know myself you know just doing a few work meetings on on zoom can be absolutely exhausting and I I love digital technology so if you're thinking about somebody who's unwell who's lacking confidence or experiencing paranoid mm. thoughts and then we're asking them uh, to, to go online or even just somebody who's feeling depressed ringing a GP at the moment and the length of time mm. it's kind of to get through and feeling like you're not really a priority because you're aware that we're in the middle of a massive physical pandemic and so people I can imagine not wanting to come forward about mental health issues at the moment as well so I think there's yeah I think it's quite complex. Do you think yeah. it could so like people are online all day for example working all day on zoom calls do you think that can make uh digital digital consultations less of a safe space of that for example because you're online all the time yeah maybe I don't maybe why really because i think you know pre-covid 19 for example see some brilliant um aspects of having a digital consultation particularly if you're working and you're managing a long-term condition and you want to just have a chat with a doctor before you go to work or when you get home or you want to use a digital device to sort of self-manage your condition but then obviously at the other extreme there are all the issues that we, we've just talked about and so i think it's it's a complex picture isn't it it's not a kind of blanket one size fits all but i do think there is an opportunity isn't there post-covid to kind of reflect on how we've suddenly um all managed to get much more kind of digitally literate as a professional group um, as before um, there was so much kind of anxiety and um, you know governance kind of barriers and various Cut the bureaucracy out the system <laughs> put all that out now and now everybody's zoom and everybody's having whatsapp consultations or you know it might be being a bit flippant but you know generally the the number of online conversations and even you know the way we've used technology for other things as well um, and the way kind of private companies have worked with the NHS you know to, to get some of the equipment in place and the Nightingale wards for example that would usually have taken years and years and has managed to be approved as a medical device within within weeks you know we've got to take some of that and think about how we can be leaner in the future I think. It has galvanised people working together hasn't it um, across mm -hmm. sectors? I think it did initially, but my feeling is that that's starting to change a little bit now. People realise we're in it for the long game and we need to think about where we go next. What I do think is exciting is the fact that, um, again, the biggest champions for service user rights have been the charity, the, the service user-led charities. And I think, you know, it's a real lesson for nurses. You know, I'm not saying that everybody should do everything and nurses should be completely leading this, but I think nurses should be absolutely tipping their hats to people like Rethink and people who constantly, constantly, day in, day out, put service user rights front and square and, and follow up on everything. Yeah. And I think I'd love to see nurses um, supporting a lot better those charities and that, that kind of work and feeling a bit more confident to say when something isn't right, you know, challenge stuff a little bit more. I mean, to be honest, it was such a quick 
situation that it was as much as we could do, I think, just to get through it. But now we're sort of learning lessons. I think there's there's a lot to be learned. I also love the idea that um, technology puts information back into service users' hands as well. This idea about self-recording, recording how you're feeling and actually uploading it. So rather than having somebody come around chasing you and talking through the letterbox and trying to get you to, 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 to comment to them, actually in your own time, because people are busy. Your service users have lives. They don't just sit around waiting for staff to fit in a visit. This idea that actually people can just upload how they're feeling, how they're doing, and they can, you know, almost do surveys and send it back. All that kind of stuff just puts information back in the hands of the people that it should belong to. I think that's exciting. It's a chance, isn't it, a disruption to do something differently. A good point about the charity, though, one of my colleagues did a story a couple of weeks ago about how uh, fragile financially charities are during this uh, yeah. pandemic. Um, uh, I remember Beat, for example, um, mm. Um, said a massive risk to to their helpline um, and you realise how much the voluntary sector actually does so I think it goes beyond nurses and uh, I think mm. the NHS as a service mm. will have realised how important mm. it is to support and engage voluntary sector. Mm. Did you have anything Vanessa from um, social media or should we press on? Um, yeah we've got a call. Cool You're breaking up a little bit. bit. Um, which Mike, can you hear me? Um, I've got um, a comment here. Um, I'm interested in what the panel think might reduce the inequalities you've been referencing. For example, NHSI and NHS have both published standards indicating that all NHS staff should receive learning disability, autism and mental health training to reduce inequality. But this doesn't seem to happen. I mean, that's a really good point, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, a really good point and that was um it was um uh oliver mcgowan's um legacy um um and his um, mother um paula mcgowan has done some really good really amazing work in um pushing that um i don't know i don't know where 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 the government has got to in that training scheme it was meant to be launched this year um and meant to be rolled out um but yeah, it's a very good point. Um, it's really important not to lose sight of things like that and, and um, training across the whole sector, not just mental health services um, mm. in understanding um, uh, learning disability and autism. Yeah. Well, with the new nursing curriculum, that is supposed to be in there. So we'll see, won't we? But I think it's it's if there's anybody out there who wants to develop... That, that stuff, put it online, I think everyone will snap it up because people are desperate to have that that input and we've lost a lot of um, space and time in making sure we're on top of this because we've lost a lot of learning disability nurses and not replaced them. Mm. And I think that absolutely is fundamental. If you don't have a professional specialism who care about this first and, and most and push it and, and make sure that it's represented, you start to see things slipping. I think it's really important as well. One of the things that mental health nursing needs to think about is um, how we stay front and centre, how we stay relevant, how we stay um, talking about the issues that are important. You know, we've been talking about mental health crises for the population. I hear psychologists, I hear, I hear doctors talking about it. You don't hear so many mental health nurses getting up and commenting on mental health issues. So I think it's really um, an exciting opportunity to, to see when those nurse, those nurse voices are tapped what they have to say. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, so I find I've found this a lot throughout my work. Um, it, I find nurses sometimes find it more difficult to 
um, I say, go on the record with something, mm. then uh, a medic or a senior manager. And I do wonder why that is sometimes. Like, uh, for obvious reasons, I think there is. <laughs> um, there is obviously that fear there, but it's so important. And what do you think the fear is? Um, I don't know, perhaps the fear that they're expendable when they're really not. <laughs> I mm. Well, I think that's, that's a good point. <laughs> Um, one of the things I think that I I first felt when I was trained to be a nurse that's 20 years ago I was very much given the messages that a good nurse is someone who is quiet and compliant and works a team member and doesn't stand out and doesn't raise their head above the parapet and you know if you have a complaint to make you make it through the right channels you know and I was I don't think anyone ever explicitly said to me "You, you shouldn't be political but you know you look around at the situation and it's nothing but politics all the way through health. And there comes a point where you actually have to remember that part of your job is patient safety and advocacy. And that requires you to stand up sometimes and say stuff that maybe people aren't too keen to hear <laughs> or ask for figures, as you did, that people aren't too keen to share. <laughs> or shout, rather. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Vanessa, what do you think? What do you think about nurses and, and sort of finding a sort of voice or a political voice? I think similar to you, Nikki, that a lot of nurses believe that they can't be political and they can't have a voice, that somehow it will get them into trouble and that we have to stay neutral. But Mm -hmm. I think there is a sea change, I think, with the current government and the things that are happening politically at the moment. I'm seeing far more um, people kind of expressing their views, particularly, you know, with things that have been going on in the last week of social isolation um, I've seen a lot more people talking about it online than they would have done before. So I think I think we are becoming more political. But I still think, like Nikki says, that, that there's a reluctance. And and certainly, you know, if you work for some NHS organisations, there's an expectation that um, that you don't you don't become, you don't you don't be political. That kind of mm-hmm. like Nikki says, quiet and neutral. Um, but I think. For me, that's difficult as a mental health nurse for the reason that Nikki says, because I think if you look at the history of mental health medicine um, in terms of, you know, what we did to people and how paternalistic um, we were as a profession, I think we've got to kind of drive forward um, the sort of advocacy and speaking out about inequalities that people are experiencing. Otherwise, we're never going to move forward. So I think that mental health nurses are possibly in a position where they need to be more political um, because of the nature of mental health. But I mm. think all nurses should be political. Mm. And for me, I'm talking sort of small, small, say, small p political. I mean, because obviously, person's politics are their own business. But there is something sometimes to be said about inequalities. That's that's for everybody to comment on. I can remember the first time I actually said something or got quoted saying something political, and I was so scared. I don't know who I thought I was going to get into trouble with. I was really terrified. I thought I thought somebody was going to tell me off, and it was probably only about five years ago, which is when I think back on the things that happened during the last 15, you know, 15 years before that, I should have said a lot more. I should have said a lot more. I was at a conference, and I was presenting some stuff on um, um, violence against women, and somebody from the audience was saying something about... Um, you know, shouldn't this be, this isn't a social issue, this is a medical issue, this is a medical conference, why are you talking about it? And I said, you know, all the Prozac in the world is not going to stop someone getting punched in the face, we need proper laws, we need places for people to go, we need nurses to be asking the question, are you safe in your house? 
And um, somebody basically wrote down what I said verbatim and put it on Twitter. And I was like, oh, no, now everyone's going to find out. <laughs> and I was like, why did I go to an international conference if I didn't think that that was the right thing to say? You know, and you suddenly have to realise that actually looking looking after people and looking out for people and serving people requires you sometimes just to say no. And a, a lot of nursing, I think, is about us wanting to be liked. You know, yeah. we, we and, and our power comes from people liking us. But I think sometimes the reason people like nurses is because they can project whatever they want onto us. Mm-hmm. You know, compliant, polite, sweet, compassionate, caring. And I think nurses have all those capacities but they also should have the capacity to say no and to stand up and defend somebody when they're not able to defend themselves you know and I think that that's just you know people don't want to see the strength in nursing they don't want to see the the intellectual side of nursing sometimes and that makes me really frustrated you know that kind of like too posh to wash too clever to care it's like everybody would want to be reasonably clever and reasonably caring they don't have to pick it's a false choice can be both so there's something to be said about pushing back a little bit on that nursing image. Mm. Does journalists else don't have that problem. No one likes journalists. It is a very weird thing, though, isn't it? Because it's all perception. None of it's none of it's real. It's just about what, what the public imagine. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So we were talking about inequalities before, and I think this is you know a really prime time perhaps to talk about kind of inequalities in staffing as well. And one of the things that's been really clear is that staff from um, Black and Asian minority backgrounds have had much, much higher death rate and much higher infection rate than other members of staff have had. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? What's going on? How we're counting it? What's what's happening? Why this is happening? Yeah, well, to be honest, I think it throws up more questions than, <laughs> than anything That's great. We love questions. Sorry for the politician's answer there. Um, <laughs> uh, I think um, in terms of what... Um, hospitals and trusts are having to think about now I think they're going to have to think about um well yeah well, first of all for example um if you, you risk assess your entire BME BM BAME staff mm. um population and find out that they're, they're all at risk are you going to take the entire group off the front line because services would quite frankly collapse but then what is the balance um and then for example do we need to have a specific support in each trust for um, so mental health support um, uh, for um, BME, BAME staff. Uh, those are kind of things that we need to be thinking about right now um, because the research isn't there yet. Mm. We don't actually know what it, what, what it is, what the risks are. Vanessa? Yeah, um, just um, can I just come in with um, a question we've got on social media? Um, and that's um, a lot of mental health services, because I think it's really important. A lot of mental health services have been restructured due to the pandemic response. Some have been closed and this has had consequences, such as increasing the thresholds for admissions. In the panel's opinion, what will it take to reverse th- these changes? Do we think COVID is going to be a requirement for admissions in the foreseeable future? We think about the reality to our positive acutely unwell as a standard practice on wards into the medium and long term. So I think there's about three questions there. So obviously the one, one about restructuring. <laughs> first one was about restructuring of services and a lot of services um, closing and the effects that that's having mm-hmm. and um, the impact that's having on thresholds for admission as well. 
Um, and then the other one is about kind of what will it take to reverse those changes and then just about kind of managing um, COVID really in mental health settings and segregating people who are testing positive but might not necessarily be unwell um, and the potential for that to go on for quite a long time as well. So so I guess um, taking the first one, um, the restructuring, um, slightly more as a, I guess in a slightly more positive angle, these mental health A&Es that are popping up, it will be interesting to see what happens with those in the next few months. I mean, whether they are a good thing, whether they turn out to be a good thing. Um, just to explain, um, during COVID, quite a few mental health trusts popped, um, pop, put the, pop up. They weren't pop-ups. <laughs> they launched um, A&Es um, for people to, to avoid people going to acute A&Es. Um, now, obviously, these can only be used by people with who don't need physical healthcare. Mm. Um, it will be interesting to see because it... <laughs> On the on the one hand, it does sort of separate health, mental health, and physical healthcare further. If you see, yeah. if you look at it that way, um, I don't have the historical knowledge to know if we've had anything similar. I don't know either. Yeah, either we had way. emergency clinics back in the day at the Maudsley. Mm. So it was what twenty odd years ago, something like that, and they were um, interesting places. So the Maudsley <laughs> Emergency Clinic was opposite the King's A and E department. So you actually could either turn left or turn right depending on what your major issues were. But um, yeah, it, it, there was lots of reasons that it closed down. I think not least because it was actually quite um, quite a feisty place to be working, yeah. <laughs> very politely say. But we also have like um, suites now. We have permission suites, so we have lots of different ways of working that. But it's a, it's a really interesting. It just goes to show you in health, nothing ever goes away. Mm. You just put the paperwork to rest, and then it pops back up again. And big circle. And, yeah, absolutely. So A and E's. What else were you gonna? Sean, it's interesting. Um, well, I was going to say, in terms of um, restructuring, uh, a lot of trusts will have had to inevitably restructure their wards, close some wards because of managing COVID. Uh, I did a story a couple of weeks ago um, with R.C. Sykes' uh, eating disorder lead, who said inevitably um, capacity in inpatient services in that sector has had to be reduced so um, to manage infection um and i guess that links into the second question about weather thresholds yeah um and i think i think sadly trust will have to manage an occupancy rate um some some trusts right now are at occupancy levels they've never they haven't seen for ages of so 60 80 mm. percent and we know in mental health that that doesn't ever happen really mm. um and i think the only way to manage yeah. that and manage a second peak will then be the uh increasing thresholds sadly yeah but it's the same as we're seeing in adult nursing isn't it in that everything that's a, a massive emergency is getting seen so heart attacks and sort of like um, psychotic breakdowns things like that are being seen as an emergency it's the long-term sort of chronic chronic illnesses that people experience that kind of like heartbreaking long-term things like cancer care for adults um things like long-term depression and anxiety for mental health services that are being told they can wait so I think we're going to get quite a bit of a backlog forming. Yeah. That's a worry. Yeah, that'll be the spike in the tail, won't it? Um, particularly if there is an additional surge in mental health need, mm. as all the services are uh, predicting there might be. Mm. Yeah, I think I was just thinking of um, that whole issue about thresholds. So you know. It, 
to to get an acute bed obviously and you'd have to be very unwell at the moment but equally um you know people who are managing at home at the moment it's a completely different you're frozen picture and imagine it. yeah because you're not going to be see your um, family you're not necessarily going to be seeing any professionals at the moment and um, that connection's not going to be there so people are going to be much more isolated um, than they were before so I think it's um, it's very difficult and it's not something that people are talking about really is it because um I'm not I'm not sure why that is I don't know if it's because we're so focused on obviously the physical um crisis of the pandemic and obviously the health pictures just starting to emerge but the mental health picture is going to be an issue isn't it for a long time and I think that comment there is really interesting um about um segregating people in mental health wards who are positive but not displaying any symptoms and how long that's going to continue and given all the work that we've done around sort of and um you know restrictive practice and things and then we're moving into a position of having to segregate people it's very very position to be in um, for the person who has been segregated but also for the mental health staff as well so uh, so I don't think mine's a question really I'm just reflecting on it really. Well it undermines a lot of the work that we finally started to get done around sexual safety didn't it so for a long time you know we've had this real need to make sure that people don't come to harm particularly sexual harm in our inpatient settings and now if we're going to be dividing, you know, segregating or moving people around on a completely different criteria, that work will be taking a back seat again. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be um, a challenging time for all the people that pull together to really start to drive that practice forward. Yeah. And Ongoing I do, work. I do wonder if it's, if it's, po- so I, and I haven't been on a ward, but if it's less possible for staff and patients to be in, interacting on a ward because of COVID and because of the infection risks, whether things like the sexual safety issues, so that will go even more unnoticed. Could, would there be a risk around that? Um, um, there's so many things that, for example, dormitory wards, uh, all the promises that we need to get rid of those this year, um, mm. are very unlikely that that's going to happen um, now. And yeah. it'll be even more difficult to tackle that uh, with COVID-19 um, within wards. Um, it's an interesting um, uh, thing you said about um, focusing on the physical he- healthcare aspects because I was thinking about the shielded group, so the 2.2 million people that are having, having to be shielded, and not much has been said from government or NHS England service about the mental health needs of that population because mm-hmm. I imagine imagine how hard it must be to be indefinitely told that you're going to be at home, um, not able to go isolate, and the risk to your life. Mm. Um, I think as well the lack of clarity has been quite frightening for people mm. um, and the fact that as soon as people get their head around what they're supposed to be doing um, there is a, a feeling that people are quite confused sometimes about what they are supposed to be doing what they're not supposed to be doing and with any kind of news cycle it's all about the throughput isn't it? it's all about being dramatic focusing on things that are frightening or scary and that has not served us well I think in terms of well-being for people so there's a lot to be said around kind of public mental health and, and, and being a lot more mindful of that. And it can change. Just think about how suicide reporting changed and how people challenge media representations of mental health. That stuff changes all the time. You know, you can make things different if you just speak up about them. I mean, one of the areas that nobody's speaking up about is prisons as well at the moment. Um, you know, dire situation in prisons because a lot of um, 
prisoners are, are you know restricted to the cells at the moment so we know that self-harm rates are going up in prisons we know that mental health staff often aren't able to go and see people face or offering support so um you know in terms of a mental health crisis um you know it's massive isn't it within prisons and where so much inequality as well um so i guess you know what's happening in in the mental health world generally but then i think it's a different level again if prisons for people and when you think that a lot of people are victims um and you know potentially you know shouldn't be in prison people who've you know, committed minor offenses although i do know that mm. uh, pregnant women for example um some have been let out on license rather than mm. staying in prison but to me that begs the question mm. that if we can do that during a pandemic and those people aren't considered a risk to the general public then why can't we look at alternatives outside of the pandemic mm. to to send in, um, pregnant women to prison um so that's an issue we've got some more questions as well that have just come through um so i think the 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 question about um inpatient mental health seems to have generated <laughs> yeah so one is um a really good question actually about the changes to the mental health act so we know that um changes were brought in with the mental health act legislation so instead of um somebody needing to be assessed for mental health detention by mm. two approved um, doctors um currently the um detained under the mental health act with one doctor so the issue is about um what we think about that um so as as far as i'm aware they've not been triggered yet um and i say yeah because we don't know if they will be triggered it all depends on um whether the services are incredibly under under pressure um i guess there is that worry that because they were even mentioned and within the act whether somewhere some in some places it's already being done um and the importance i think um it is being monitored or at least the dh have asked trust to report to them when they've had problems with the mental health act and getting um uh, getting section 12 doctors naps i think for me it brings me back to his point earlier about advocacy and nursing so i can totally see that whilst this isn't great a pragmatic decision if we don't have enough doctors then you know we may have to make changes to the legislation but that doesn't mean that we um won't be kind of able to advocate for somebody so if somebody comes into hospital in that context and as a registered nurse on the ward i still think that as a nurse we've got a responsibility to um to advocate for that person if we think that they've been unlawfully detained so i think that's mm. kind of what that i would reinforce that it's mm. more important than ever that we as um, a profession are um, making sure that people understand the rights and if, if we feel that someone's unlawfully detained that we're able to speak out and support people to appeal against detention that's also understanding that this has been done as a sort of mm. pragmatic response to the crisis um in my opinion rather than to kind of um you know detain people in the future um with only one doctor and kind of reduce the sort of ethical framework that we've got in, in place currently so there's that question and then mm. uh, 
Yeah, someone's put as well. Um, do you think it'll be more challenging to meet community service needs over the next six to 12 months or inpatient needs in the COVID environment? That's interesting. So I guess that's about, um, yeah, the challenges in the community mental health setting um, versus the challenges in an, an inpatient setting. I mean, personally, I think that they'll both be different challenges. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I mean, so this was meant to be the year we started to rebuild community mental health teams. Um, as this was supposed to be the year that we started to rebuild bolster those services again after years and years of uh, having it having funding cut and resources um, cut being cut. So um, that hasn't happened yet, and COVID could very well take the focus away from that, um, which will be a disaster. <laughs> but I guess um, the if we're thinking about mental health needs, it, it it could put it could refocus the need to bolster community mental health teams. And we were talking about thresholds earlier. Um, how do you deal with thresholds um, in your community mental health team? Yeah. For example, there's a lot more um, emphasis I think going to be placed on. Um, sort of non-medical responses, I think, to stress and anxiety and distress. And I, I find that quite positive. I think it would be really good rebalancing back out again. So if you look at who stepped up and who stepped in, you look at the community support services that have come from within communities. That's been amazing to see. Um, people checking in on each other, that's been amazing to see. Um, it's not the public's job to deal with serious mental health issues, but I think it is our job as people to be nicer to each other. It's much underrated. Like just, just, just halfway decent. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. you look at the volunteer scheme and the yeah. thousands and thousands of people that signed mm. up to mm. it. I mean, I don't know what's yeah. happening with the scheme now, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. Well, I do think we're also going to see a lot of stuff that started um, just getting quietly shelved. So we had great movement forward on um, supporting people who were homeless, people without homes. Mm. Um, all of a sudden, we found ways to solve that problem. And now it's slightly tripping back. You know, it's just going back back again now. You know, we found ways to step up and actually give power to other people. So fine, we should be keeping that. There's a lot of things that um, COVID has caused, like um, big shifts in um, attitudes and what we thought was possible. But I think we do need to keep a real close eye on where we're going to. And so for me, the biggest thing about the mental health that changes were, I just didn't know they were happening until I saw them on Twitter. And I do keep an eye on what's going on. And, and I think all sort of, mental health people with mental health interest should really keep an eye on what's going on just so they can make sure they input into it but it was such a swift thing I was like oh I suppose that makes sense I, I guess um what's happening <laughs> it, was, it, it felt very much like that rather than like this is a safety issue and it will it will it will be over by or be under review to be taken out by such and such a time it felt like it was something that kind of slipped in without much discussion it was a yeah and a lot of gray concern around it yeah. um i think so they only recently um some guidance was published around digital assessments uh, and the legality with digital mental health assessments mm. um and um well as i understand it the, mm. the guidance from anderson was legally we can't see anything wrong with them but um essentially that will have to stand up if it goes to <laughs> if it goes to court yeah which makes it very unfortunate for the person who has to test that out doesn't it yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely is there any more questions or should we um, press on? Because we've got, a, we've, we're running out of time now. So we just do a couple more. Just um, one here, which I think is quite interesting. Does the panel have any experience or knowledge of peer advocacy for mental health or 
learning being done remotely at the moment. How can peers, to use the term, in the community advocate for inpatients without um, physically visiting wards at the moment? So I guess the question is, are we aware of anywhere where that's happening? That's by Mad Lives Matter. Hmm. Then, that's, that's a really good question. And I have to be honest, I, I'm, I don't know off the top of my head if there's any if that's happening anywhere it, i guess it would it would be for trust to actually go out and and say we're this is we're, we're enabling that here so please come and please come and um talk to us we want we want your help we really want um to encourage peer advocacy so perhaps, some real issues haven't we with it? I, I can think of loads of trusts that don't even have proper wi-fi so how somebody would be able to um, use their phone. And also, I can remember times when phones were taken, we used to be taken off people when they came into hospital. And that's like unthinkable now. It's really challenging. I know it happens from time to time, but absolutely, it should be really, really questioned if that's that's a situation. Because it's somebody's connection, isn't it? It's like taking away everything from somebody. Um, so there's something around how people are negotiating online. There is some fantastic practice, not particularly around advocacy, but I've seen the Dragon Cafe has gone online. There's a lot of service user groups that are uh, moving forward. I know recovery colleges have gone all online now. So I think it's going to be a matter of time before that boundary is broken forever. You know, this idea that somebody, a gatekeeper, can control um, what goes on on a ward like that. In the past, absolutely, you know, staff contained people Whereas that's not possible now, and nor should it be. Then that that will always be a, a porous experience from now on, and that will that will be changed forever. We can't go back now, and I think that's for the best. And there's no reason why an advocate shouldn't be able to comment in a ward round virtually exactly the same way a social worker or an occupational therapist or anybody else should. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. For just finishing up, we were looking at um, if somebody does want to sort of start uh, speaking up or speaking out about issues that concern them. Have you got any sort of like top tips, any anything that you would suggest that people would consider? Uh, speaking to a journalist you trust <laughs> first. Um, I mean, yeah, journalists get a bad rep, but the ones I know are pretty, they're all very trustworthy and mm. protect a source to no end. So it depends um, who you're speaking to then, what journalist? Depends who you're speaking to, yeah. I mean, um, there are so many different, forums there to speak up and speak out. I mean, I would you can speak out um, uh, to trust directly. I would say sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, don't don't be afraid to challenge things that you are seeing come out of your trust, even if it's on Twitter. Even mm-hmm. if, <laughs> even if it's uh, to be challenged on Twitter. To, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think one thing to be aware of is um, as for, <clears throat> for any health professional or any student, if you're putting stuff on Twitter. Be aware that it's in the public domain, so it can be quoted in newspapers. It can be that information can be moved out of the context you put it in, into another context. So you just need to be mindful of what you tweet, in the same way that you're kind of mindful of what you say. But it's just something to be aware of because often um, we had experiences where we've had sort of like um, news news stories break, and with trusts and universities and all those kind of like bigger institutions, they can't keep up with the speed of information that flies across social media. So um, if you are caught up in something like that, either don't comment and make a special attempt not to comment or go to the person in the trust or in the organisation you work for and actually ask to speak to their representative, their media representative, and put together um, a quote that you can all sign up to so you can still speak out and you can still say what it is that's important to you but in a way that is supported by your management and your workplace and actually represents you 
properly in a way that you feel comfortable with. So don't get rushed into things, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. Vanessa, any advice on speaking up, speaking out? Yeah, I just totally think what you've just said is really sound advice because certainly, you know, there are really great journalists out there and I, you know, I do um, speak to journalists, but um, equally I know that I've been misrepresented at times when I have done things for the media. So it's very easy to be taken out of context. So I think mm. mindful of that and um, being able to work with your organisation and um being able to um, think about the ahead of the potential of what you're going to say in the context and also maybe um, having a bit of curiosity about um, what kind of article is going to be, what the focus of the article is going to be, because you might think that you're going to talk about one thing and the article might have a very different political focus and that's the same with radio because I've done a radio interview and that happened to me on live radio as well that I was you know the focus of it of it changed when it um you know so it, so I think it's quite as a nurse it's quite a difficult thing to to do I think it's important and I wouldn't discourage people but I think what Nick is saying about being cautious and thinking things through carefully and and getting support is is really important and I don't think I don't think it's on an unreasonable ask to ask um, the journalist you're talking to, what's the context around the article? Can you just talk me through about what you about or what you're writing about? It's completely not an unreasonable ask, and <laughs> should be questions raised if they won't tell you. <laughs> I mean, I, I I do do that, but if somebody is kind of speaking to a journalist for the first time, they may not have that experience to know. What, what might happen with that so I don't want to seem negative because I do think <laughs> what we were saying earlier it is important that we that we do speak out and that we do talk about our profession and, and kind of moving forward mental health and raising inequalities but equally um, we've got to do it within a professional context and framework mm. as well I think. I think the other thing is you don't even have to be saying anything that controversial. What I love is, I mean, I, I, when I um, first started out, people came up to me and said, are you a mental health nurse? And I was like, no, what's a mental health nurse? And then I found mental health nurses and I knew absolutely I was a mental health nurse. It was just so nice to be around that culture. I loved it. I still love it. And that's what I'd love to see more of. I mean, nurses don't need to be, you know, forever going to the barricades and complaining. It's even just sharing the kind of positive stuff that we do um, who we are, what we care about, you know, the fact that there's tons of different kinds of ways to be a nurse. You don't have to be a nurse in one particular way. Um, we've got tons of different voices. And also being really clear about the fact that there's an artificial separation between service users and staff sometimes. You know, people can be both. Yeah, It's not, it's not one or the other. You know, being a nurse is not a discrete thing. You're a nurse and a person and a, a brother or a sister or a mom and a citizen. And those things all really connect up together. So I would just like to hear more nurse voices and people being able to be confident to say, actually, the skills that you have as a nurse, you know, being practical, being pragmatic, being able to weigh evidence, being able to critically make critical decisions. Those are key skills for society, particularly at this time. And I think one of the things that maybe social media is going to give us is the ability to create our own terms of conversation so when you see a twitter chat it's completely egalitarian isn't it anyone can join in when you see a blog anyone can write about something they care about or review a book that they care about and send it in and there's lots of ways that you can participate in a conversation without it being something that's aggressive or frightening for you yeah so i think don't be discouraged mm. we're nearly at the end though so can i just ask you as we're rambling on <laughs> um, 
Um, is there anything we can do to move forward? So I think everyone's rightly said, you know, COVID has brought us challenges, concerns, lots more questions than answers. But is there anything sort of positive that we can we can take forward or anything we need to particularly bring to the forefront? What do you think, Rebecca? I think so. I, there have been a lot of positives that have come out as a byproduct and mm-hmm. a lot of transformational changes that services have just made overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, for example, the flexible working allowing our, our, work, our workforce to work much more flexibly flexibly, and thinking about how we hold on to that actually when in a, in a year's time hopefully mm-hmm. that this is this is over or <laughs> yeah so thinking about how you can keep hold of the transformational changes that have happened in your service and perhaps sharing them more because mm-hmm. yeah as you, as you said we're um I think uh, NHS services aren't good at great at sharing best practice and good things they do. Thank you very much. Nessa? Just um, the way that it's raised the profile of what we do massively, I think, amongst the public and that kind of awareness of the value of nursing and nurses and doctors and other healthcare professionals. And, you know, for mm-hmm. me, I agree with everything that Rebecca said about innovation, but for me, it is about um, changing the perception of nurses and how we capitalise on that post-COVID-19 and take that forward is really important. But I think that's positive for me. Is there anything else coming out on social media? No, um, I think it's quietened down really on social media. We haven't had any more comments. Okay. Um, quite a few people listening. And I guess I'd just say if you, um, as we're about to finish, but if mm comment further do comment on the hashtag and we'll keep an eye on that and we'll um, be able to refer any kind of comment questions to Rebecca as well who's on Twitter um, yeah just contact us via the hashtag I guess all that remains then is to say goodnight and thank you very much everybody it's um, been lovely to see you again and thank you for Rebecca for coming and joining us today thank you both for having me bye bye bye